Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Howie Games. Great to have you listening as always. And to say I'm excited about today's guest is a massive understatement. We are bringing to the table, if you don't mind, Greg Norman. The great right guru, Pickle, hit me with some statistical gold, Pengy. Okay, Pickle, wrap your little brain around these numbers. 331 weeks at number one. Wow. 91 international tournament wins. Crikey. Two British Opens. Epic. World Golf Hall of Famer. Radical. And he owns his own plane. Respect. Word. 30 years after forming Great White Shark Enterprises, a predominantly sports management-based company, Greg and his team have just completed a corporate restructure, giving birth to the Greg Norman Company. Now, this new operation, well, it expands well beyond the realms of the former golf-inspired organisation. It's going to be huge, a game-changer in its field. Greg may be an even better businessman than he was golfer, which is saying something... Now, I grew up idolising Greg Norman. As a young sports fan, how could you not? He was flamboyant, aggressive, dominant, striking. Greg was the full package. Following Greg inside the ropes as an on-course commentator for Network 10 is no doubt one of the highlights of my working life. Interviewing him for the first time years ago in WA, I was that nervous. Greg's got a real aura to him. I was very, very edgy. I needn't have been, though. He was warm, generous with his time, and he even offered me investing advice at the end of the chat. If only I'd had something to invest. Anyway, this is the first Howie Games not done in person. Greg was in Florida on the phone to me in Melbourne. Greg Norman inspires me. I hope he does you. Oh, my Jaja, tell me why won't they open up their eyes? They could help out if they try, try, try. If they would try, try, try. Welcome to the Howie Games, Greg Norman from Florida. G'day, Greg. Good morning, Howie. How you doing, buddy? It's great to be on your show. Wonderful to speak to you. Busy times for you. Busy times at the moment. Yeah, very much so. I've been uh, well, first get off by uh, rebranding my company and changing its name, which has been a very, very exciting process for the last couple of years where we've captured on the basically the new direction of where I put the company a few years ago. It's interesting. You've gone from uh, Great White Shark Enterprises, Greg, to the Greg Norman Company. I guess GWSE, let's get right into it, was probably the biggest uh, bent was sports management. You're moving away from that area now in some ways, being uh, not on the golf course so much. Yeah, that's basically what it is, Howie. You know, know, back in early, uh, late uh, 92, going into 93, when I started GWSE, or Great White Shark Enterprises, you know, I was still at the top of my game then. I was still um, putting a lot of bums on the seats and putting people through the gates to come watch us play golf. And um, But, you know, I knew after a period of time that I was never going to be a ceremonial golfer. I didn't want to be a ceremonial golfer. So I had to make these uh, decisions many, many years ago. Um, and as my business was building out for, with Great White Shark Enterprise, I got a really good foundation um, I've got a great platform that I like to say is a mile wide and an inch deep instead of a mile, um, an inch wide and a mile deep. Hmm. So I feel very, very strong about where I am right now. And, and on top of that, Howie, I got very lucky to have an extremely recognizable and desired logo. Now, Greg, we, we're going to get into the business side a little bit later on because my shares aren't going well, so I need to discuss that with you. But before we move into that area, 
Where did it all start for you? Young bloke going up in Queensland. What's your first memories of golf? Oh, my first memories of golf would have to be um, hitting a golf ball on Magnetic Island um, with Sam Greens with uh, my mum and dad. And was it something that struck you as a young man, a very young man, that you wanted to be involved in or did it sort of develop over time? It really developed over time. Um, I obviously, when I first started playing, I had a, a handicap of uh, 27. I wasn't any world beater by any means. Um, but I loved the actual challenge of what golf presented me. Yeah, typical Australian kid. I grew up playing all the team sports, whether you know, cricket and rugby and um, uh, you know, Aussie rules, a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, the sports that really captured my imagination as a kid, but never really any individual sports outside of surfing, I should put it to you. Um, so at the end of the day, when I started playing more and more golf, um, I really started to, uh, realize and see the value of, uh, practice and the value of commitment and the value of performance. Um, and it all added up to the fact that, um, yeah. Over a very short period of time, I went from a 27 handicap down to scratch in 18 months. Um, I went my very first official score of about 108, um, all the way down to wanting to break 70 and then hoping to break 60 sometime. So it was always a, a, a push and a desire to, internally for me just to try and get better and better and better. And at what point did you realise, Greg, that, okay, maybe I'm not going to become a professional surfer, which I think discussing with you in the past, that's sort of the path you were going down, and think I could actually make a living out of playing golf. When, when does that click in your mind? Um, I, would, I would say when I was winning a lot of the Monday uh, assistant pro you know, competitions we used to have in and around Brisbane um, and travelled out into the countryside where a bunch of the, the assistant pros would go off and put our own money in and uh, just play on that one day, 18 holes. And, and I, you know, I was fairly confident in my ability to, to win that and pick up a spare bit of cash because we weren't making a lot of money in those days. I was making $28, $32 a week. <laughs> um, so as that progressed, uh, my game progressed. Um, and I was starting to get um, the confidence to step out. And what drove me to say I'm, I'm going to go off to be a professional golfer and play tournament golf? I think it was just the individual uh, desire inside me. Everybody, you know, pretty much didn't expect me to do it. Um, and I knew that I was a very self-driven guy. Um, so I just made the decision uh, going into 1976 that I was going to venture out. And I passed all my trainee professional exams. I had to do three years of exams in, in less than uh, two years. I did about 18 months. Uh, for the PGA of, uh, of Australia to give me the um, the, the, the rights or uh, the permission to go play tournament golf. Um, so when I got out there, I got I got my exams under my belt. I got permission to go play. And I remember going down, I believe, to Batemans Bay and then the Queensland Open. I, I put in fairly good performances. And then the third tournament I played in, which was a Westlake Classic, and yesterday actually was my 40-year 40th, 40th, 40 anniversary of me winning the Westlake Classic. So that was the one that really catapulted me into, um, you know, into the confidence and belief and desire to keep on winning. You mentioned the Westlake's classic. I think it was at the Grange. So you go up and you get your trophy, Greg. D- does your mindset start to change at this point of view? And how much did you win? Can you remember in that first tournament back in 76? Yeah, $7,000. Hey. That was more money. 
that was more money than I've ever had in my life up until that point. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. How good is this sport? I can win $7,000 for hitting a white golf ball from point A to point B better than anybody else on four given days. So I thought it was pretty cool. Um, but, uh, you know, it, you know, from there it was just now I'd, standing at the prize giving ceremony, you just mentioned how he is the fact that uh, I was very much an introverted kid. And uh, I remember a dear friend of mine, Brian Smith, who I traveled with and spent a lot of time with uh, as, as my way, in my younger years of uh, playing the game. Uh, he said to me, hey, you got to get up there and make a, you know, make a speech now. And I go, oh, my gosh. And the clubhouse was full of people and members and stuff like that. And, and I had to make a decision then, right there and then within myself. If I wanted to keep going on and keep winning, I had to lose my introverted uh, nature and become a confident feeling individual up there in front of, you know, whether it's two dozen people or uh, uh, 200,000 people, you had to be consistent and deliver a very, very calm, uh, clean message. So thank you. And away from golf at this stage, Greg, you've just won $7,000. How are you getting around? What type of car are you driving? Do you get to have a couple of beers and relax? What's life like as a very, very young junior pro? Well, uh, I, I had a couple. My mum had a car. I used to drive a uh, Hillman that my dad had for my mum before. And then I went into a, uh, a Holden Toronto, I believe. Uh, <laughs> and, a, uh, and then I had a Cortina, Paul Cortina. So I was just, you know, there weren't new cars, believe me. I, I was shopping in the secondhand used car market <laughs> all the time. And, uh, and yeah, look, as a kid, that in 76, I was 21 years old. Um, you know, so I, yeah, I did have a few beers with my friends at the end of the day. Of course I did. Um, do you, do you go and run off half cock saying, God, look how easy it is? No, you don't. Um, because the realization is that, um, you know, these guys are going to be better than you on a given day just because I was good those four days. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't relax. I actually was a big stimulant to me to go out there and just get better and just get better and better. How much work do you need to put in to be the best at something, Greg, whether it be golf or business? How much work's required? Well, let me just put it to you this way, Howie. If, uh, to be good at anything, you have to be, um, uh, apply yourself more than anybody else. And look, it's the talent you have within you, with talking specifically to golf, it's the talent you have uh, inherently in your body, but it's the desire and the push in your mind. And when you see other people practicing for six or eight hours a day, I wanted to practice for eight to 10 hours a day. Because I knew if I gave that little bit extra, more than anybody else, then I, my fuel tank was always going to be full, ready to go. So uh, I had that type of approach. Uh, even today with business, you know, you got to stay focused on it all day long. You got to, you know, you, you got to be on top of your emails. You got to be on top of all your conference calls. You got to, be very clear. You got to understand and sit back and listen to all your executives to make sure you really interpret and understand exactly what they're saying to you for you to make a you know the, the right decision because you can make a wrong decision. You can hurt the company big time. Um, so I'm very much a listener. Um, I do you know obviously when I'm doing press conferences and stuff and you know, people ask me questions, I talk. But when I'm in a boardroom, I'm more of a listener than anybody. Just, um, you know, I've got this great saying, you, know, you, you don't learn anything by speaking <laughs> too much. So I sit back and I listen. So you move on to the world stage, Greg. When do you start to become an internationally recognized 
athlete. You went to your first Masters, I reckon, probably 81 and maybe finished fourth. I'm talking off the top of my head now. But when do people start to turn in the street and say, hey, there's that golf guy or, or there's that Aussie? I tell you what it was a real eye-opener for me was when I left Australia and on the way to Europe, my first trip to Europe, I went through Japan. And I, I won the very first tournament I played there called the Kuzaha International. Uh, and, you know, I had long blonde hair and I'm a tall guy, six foot. Hmm. You know, in, in, the, in, the, in the world of the Japanese, I was like a monster, basically. And my white hair was what made them fascinated by me. And uh, when I won that first tournament, obviously there was some press and obviously there was a little bit of television. And I'll never forget getting on the train to go to uh, the airport or go back to the hotel, how people want to just touch my hair and just touch me and just like, oh, my gosh, you can hear him talking, you know, not dummy, dummy, gaijun, which is, uh, you know, Japanese for a stupid foreigner. It was like, oh, my gosh, you know, you could hear him. And it was, it was crazy. And I thought, oh, this is weird. This is weird. People touching and pulling and, you know, wanted to see if I was real. And that, that image and uh, that situation has never really left me. So, and I think really after that, it was when I went to Europe um, and I won the Martini International. Um, again, I think it was the first one I played in over there, Blair Gary, and I uh, won it in convincing fashion. And that's when, you know, because of the sequence of victories I had in such an early stage of my career, um, you know, I was starting to get uh, talked about and written up. So many athletes, Greg, seem to deal, and so many people seem to struggle to deal with fame from the outside looking in and that's the only position I can I guess call it it's something that you don't seem to have struggled with how have you dealt with it when you do something good or bad that you're on the front page or the bad page of the paper whether it be your personal life or your golf life or your business life is it difficult at some stage to open the paper and see yourself there oh absolutely depends on the circumstances I mean look what what bugged me during my whole career is people making an assumption on you without knowing the facts um, and that really bugged me big time. Uh, you'll pick up a, a newspaper, and you even get it today to some degree. Uh, professional journalism seems like it's gone out the door. Hmm. And at the end of the day, you uh, you sit back and say, all, the, all they had to do was pick up the phone, and I would have told them exactly what's going on. And then they could have written a fair and balanced article. So, you know, growing up, I just learned to compartmentalize it, to tell you the truth, Howie. I learned that if you wanted to be successful, uh, as a public figure on a sporting stage, you had to take the the, the, the knocks uh, with all the accolades. And, uh, you know, there's this great saying, you, you can please some of the people some of the time, but not all the people all the time. So even now when I look at my Instagram account and my Twitter account, you get always get somebody uh, wanting to just rip into you. So all you do is hit the block button. You don't, uh, you don't respond and you just move on um, and just realize that other people – do have an opinion, uh, right or wrong, whether you uh, embrace it or not embrace it. Um, so you have to respect them for that, that they want to voice it. So um, all I do is just forget it, move on, like I said, and compartmentalize. And I know my next step in life is going to be the first step that I need to take. It's funny you say that, Greg, because here in Australia, I love our country and I couldn't be more proud to be Australian. And the one thing that I battle with being Australian is the tall poppy syndrome and we build people up and then we look to cut them down. The, the place where you spent so much of your life, America, it's the opposite. But we, uh, they, they really like to push people forward that are having a crack and doing their best and standing out from the field. It's a weird one in Australia. We like to bring people back to be somewhere where we think we are. 
Yeah, I don't understand it, uh, really, to tell you the truth, Howie. Forty years I've been at it. Um, and I look at, um, you know, I can mention world-class figures over here that have gone through disastrous um, turn of events in their lives, whether it's um, human growth hormones or whether it's cheating or whether it's whatever it is. Mm. And you know what? You know, time passes by and, and they go, okay, he's a hero to the sport or whatever that is, or she did this. And they go, okay, you know, we we uh, accept that everybody, well, I say we, uh, they seem like they accept over here the fact that, um, you know, people do have faults. People do make mistakes. When people are humble enough to admit to those mistakes, you know, embrace it, enjoy it. Because I guarantee you, every person on this planet, every journalist who writes some negative slant against somebody else, I promise you, they've done the same thing. They've done something wrong. They've, they've really not, they're not Mr. Pure or Mrs. Pure. <clears throat> so just sit back and just say, what effect am I having, not just on an individual, but the individual's family? the individual's friends, um, what, or who she's involved with. Um, that's where you've got to sit back and take stock and realize that, you know, some of the things that are written that are not true are, are definitely hurtful, and they stay there forever because people have a tendency of wanting to believe what they read, um, and whether, they're fact, whether it's factual or not. And it's, it's really is disappointing. Yeah, it's a bizarre one. As I said, it's the only real beef I have with Australia as a place. And you're all right, great man. Let's talk golf. 331 weeks at number one, over 90 international tournaments, a couple of majors. What do you what do you learn, Greg, from winning? We'll get to losing, but what do you learn from winning? Well, your winning is basically the rest, the, the final, the final piece of all the hard work that you've done. Uh, that's what you practice for, <clears throat> mentally and physically. That's what you strive for, to get out there and come Sunday to hoist that trophy in the air. Oh, look, there's some players out there who, who don't have that mindset. They're happy to be journeymen and just go through and, and make a very, very nice living. But if you do want to be a winner, um, that's what you strive for. So when, when the Sunday comes along and you, you've achieved your goal for that week, you go with a lot of humility, just say thank you and move on uh, because next week's another week. And you're not probably not going to be on song next week. Somebody else is going to come back and beat you. And then you've got to improve. You, you study on your mistakes and what, what puts you into trouble. Um, so it's just in the, uh, uh, the whole process is a, uh, it evolves and it's very, very fluid. And, uh, and I basically learn more by my losses than I do with anything. Same in business. Um, I learn more by what I've failed at in business than what I've succeeded in business. A couple of British Opens, 86 and 93, Greg. Are they, are they special memories, or do you look at other golf tournaments or other single days where you've played your best golf? Oh, yeah, I can think of many, many days where I played my best golf and didn't win. Mm. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's just one of those great things about golf. Um, I, I, I looked at the British Open this year with Hendrik Stenson and Phil Mickelson and go, oh, my God, I know exactly how Phil feels. And the higher you are up the ladder the more those times like that are going to happen to you. And because somebody is just that much better than you on a given day. So when, when that British Open, the final round, and I saw those guys playing there, I didn't turn off the TV or take my eyes off the TV because mm. I was so impressed with the way those two were going at each other, shot for shot, birdie for birdie, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, right up to the very end. Next week, the Howie Games is hitting the surf, dudes. Pickle, we're gonna get barreled, shacked, tubed, 
covered, drained, and we're going to enter the green room with seven-time world champ Lane Beachley. I always wanted to be the best of the best. I never allowed the history books to dictate to me what I could or could not achieve. I just wanted to be the best of the best. So what I did was I looked at the history books and went, well, what does the history say about the best? Well, Lisa Anderson's Lisa won four in a row. Yep. Let's go for five. And after I won my fifth, Kelly Slater won five in a row. Well, I've matched him. I need to be better than that. So I won six. That's next week in the Howie Games. So how do you celebrate becoming a major winner? You're getting around. I'm not sure if it was 86 or 93 where you were in that outrageous sort of argyle yellow top. I don't know what was going on with your fashion at that stage. But how do you celebrate winning and becoming a major winner? Um, look, first, to be honest with you, uh, if the first one, it was like a big sense of relief hmm. uh, because at that stage in 86, I had uh, led the Masters going into Sunday. I led the US Open going into Sunday. I come up short, so there was a lot of pressure on me, and there was a lot of expectations on me, and there was a lot of, uh, I guess, doubters out there. Um, so I know going into the British Open, when I went there for my first practice round, I think it was on the Monday afternoon. The weather was bad, the forecast was bad for the entire week, and I walked off the uh, off the Turnberry, walked into my hotel room, and I said to myself, "This is going to be a great week for me." because the golf course was so tough, the fairways were so narrow, uh, it played right up my alley because I was driving the golf ball and there wasn't a fairway narrow enough that I didn't think I could hit. Uh, I came in on Monday and I felt so good about the opportunity because the way the golf course was set up. And then Tuesday came along, I played a couple of practice, I played a practice round with a couple of my friends and they were all bitching and complaining about how tough it was and, you know, the RNA has gone overboard with the way the rough is so thick and heavy and somebody's going to break their wrists and blah, 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 blah. And um, I'm thinking, wow, this is even better for me. The more negative overtures you hear, the more positive I got. So as the week went by, I told myself, don't change your game plan. Drive the golf ball. Just drive the golf ball. Don't, don't play, um, um, you know, more or less safety golf. Um, I was more or less, okay, drive it out there. If it is in the rough, I'm going to be 30 yards, 40 yards closer to the green than most other players so I can get a pitching wedge or a nine-iron on the, the golf ball more than somebody's trying to get a seven or a six-iron on it. So you go on and win that, Greg, and we, we talk about winning and success. Do you reflect on that? Do you ever sit on your lounge chair now and look back at those victories and what you achieved in golf, or is it always looking forward? Do you have a chance in your life to reflect on your successes on the golf course? Um, I probably do more so now because of my grandson. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he, um, he comes, he walks through my house now and, and now he's getting to the age of nearly two and he starts looking at the trophies and now he wants me to, he wants to get a golf club. So I've got a golf club my, I had my sons and my daughter use when they were his age. I still kept it. So I'm going to take him out there now and all of a sudden. It's got a totally different meaning for me. And, uh, but yes, you know, for me, yes, there's times when we do articles with my uh, corporate communications gal that we have to put out there and she'll ask me certain questions to fill the article out. And she says to me, boy, I cannot believe how good your memory is on almost everything I ask you about a shot or about a hole. Hmm. And uh, so when I go back into those situations and you actually 
cleanse your mind of all the other white noise and you go back into that mode, it really is a beautiful place to be. Even the bad stuff is good, you know, that, that because at the end of the day, it, it shows you or it, you reflect on how I handled the situation and how impactful just by the simple things of being very humble in your defeat, uh, what impact that had on thousands and thousands of fathers and mothers who have come to me and said, you cannot believe what the message you delivered and the powerful impact you made me to hand down to my kids about the way you handle your defeats. And so when you look at it all, you go, okay, it's not too bad, really, um, because at the end of the day, it is just a game. It's just the sport is just sport. And there's always going to be somebody who's going to be better than you. And there's always going to be a lot of people who are a lot worse off than you. So, you know, when I look back at it, I go and I walk down the trophy hall with my grandson and start <laughs> talking about it. You know, those are the things that um, that will be very, very powerfully reflected um, in my years to come. What's the bad stuff on the golf course? You mentioned the good stuff and the bad stuff. In your mind, what's the bad stuff? Um, look, when I first came to America and I started winning over here on a regular basis, I mean, it was it was hard yakka. You know, it was uh, walking from green to tea. Look, I wouldn't say majority of people um, were huge fans of mine and great supporters of mine. I would say 99%, 98% of them. <clears throat> but, you know, one bad apple uh, in there can really make life very, very difficult. Um, so when you walk from green to tea and you're trying to be concentrating on what you're doing or stay in the moment and literally people not four feet from you would yell out some obscene obnoxious comment and uh you know and it, it just i get it i get their their their, their point to their home team player mm. but at the end of the day it's it's a reflection upon them not reflection upon me um so that was that was one in there i mean that was numerous incidents where that happened um, and I could really, you know, I've had conversations with Nicholas about it many years ago about when he came along and started beating Arnold Palmer and everybody called Fat Jack and, you know, <laughs> the king was being dethroned and they went against him. I guess it's just a natural deal, you know, where, where when somebody comes along and you're winning on a regular basis, um, you know, they, they go pull for the underdog. underdog. Greg, the Masters, it was, it was just... So bloody good when Adam Scott won that Masters and Australia had a Masters winner. <laughs> the history you've had with that tournament um, multiple times, I reckon, three times third and probably three times second and a fourth in there as well, a couple of famous times when it didn't go your way. How do you walk away from the course in 87 when Myers chips in or 96 with Faldo? How do you walk away and do you, do you get back home at any stage and get upset about it like you seem to just roll with it but in your personal moments if you can tell me what's it like to lose on the world stage um, well it's not it's not great to lose on the world stage when everybody's looking at you that's for no. sure uh, of course you get reflective you know when you get away uh 87 was different than Faldo's year 93 <clears throat> totally different um uh, because i had no control over that i actually thought that i had that locked up um, you know, because I hit the, perp- the second shot, maybe 10 feet too far to the right into the second playoff hole on number 11. Um, but I was there. I didn't think Larry Mize uh, could have gotten that ball up and down one out of 100 <laughs> times from that position. And uh, so I was feeling really, really good. Uh, but look, there's a prime situation. is You cannot control what other people do. You can only do your best 
at that given time. And at the end of the day, you know, Larry chips in, he wins the Masters, and quite honestly, after that, where did Larry Mize go? Yeah. Um, you know, he, he, his career was a good one, but it wasn't a great one. Um, you know, and at the end of the day, with, with the, the Fowler deal, you know, that was just a, a bad start, um, you know, to the whole, the whole day on a Sunday. I mean, I woke up, I had a bad back, my, my back was stiff and sore. I remember walking around the, around the, um, the residential community where I'd rented the house very, very early in the morning. I mean, it must have been before sunrise because my back was so sore in the morning. I was trying to loosen it up and, uh, you know, I don't have a tea time until, you know, nearly three o'clock in the afternoon, two thirty, three o'clock and, and I'm trying to, you know, figure out what I'm going to do for the next eight or nine hours to, to kill this, you know, to alleviate myself. And, and um, you know, when I got to the golf course, I got there a little bit earlier to try and again get my, um, you know, Pete Drejovich is with me, my my trainer, and we tried to loosen up, and it was basically my hip and, and my uh, lower back, so I couldn't rotate into it the way I wanted to. Um, and I walked to the driving range, and Butch Harmon looked at me and says, well, what's wrong? And I said, don't worry about Butch, we'll be fine. He said, well, yeah, I can, there's something going on. And, mm. and you know, he could tell, obviously. And um, in my first couple of shots, he could see that it wasn't exactly the way we wanted it. Um, the club was getting stuck behind me because my rotation wasn't as, uh, as fluid as it was before. Um, so, look, just a, that's just part of, again, sport, Howie. Um, you know, you get, sometimes it happens and you got to deal with it. And I struggled with it. I thought I was managing this, managing the situation pretty darn good all day, all through Sunday. But if you go back and look at some of the, the highlights of it, you can see where I was either three feet too short on my, on my second shot. So my distance control was a little bit out. And when you're a little bit out long or short at Augusta National, you're putting yourself in a, in a tough 18 hole battle. Um, and I did that quite a few times, and, you know, I remember the ninth hole, especially, I thought I hit a beautiful second shot in there, and it comes up three feet too short, and uh, spins back off the green, and, you know, that was you know, that was a prime example where I wasn't spot on, 100% sharp with my shot making. So, last one on this, when you get home that night, do you have a beer and say, oh, well, do you wrap a golf club around a tree? Do you have tears in your eyes? What's your emotion, mate? Oh, look, I'll be, I'll tell you the truth. I mean, there's times when I've gone down to my beach and sat down there and just taken, taken a couple of beers on my own and just got away from people. Uh, most of the time, not most of the time, I would say I'm very good with my friends and family where I don't want to show my hurt to them because it, to me it's, it's as I, I keep repeating it it's just a game mm. um, and it's important for them to realize that okay I've taken it on the chin I've accepted it you know let's move on but at the same time I think it's also important for you the individual like me uh, to express to myself the the, the hurt um, and that's why I do it on my own I just took a couple of beers went down the beach sat down and, and shed a tear yeah, mate, I'm not surprised. Um, like you say, though, I love the quote on your website that victory is sweet, but how you handle yourself in defeat is often more telling. And, yeah, that's uh, uh, that's a great way of looking at it. Yeah, it certainly is. Look, I mean, you're going to, in life, you're going to have a lot of bumps. Um, show me a road with no obstacles, I'll tell you that road leads to nowhere. 
Um, hmm. So give me a give me a road with obstacles that you can figure out, and when you figure when you're when you're solve a problem or solve a situation in life and become a better person for it, your life becomes better. Mate, golf these days for you, we're about to move on to business, but uh, I've seen you in the gym plenty of times in Coolum in various places where you've been playing and I've been working on a golf tournament and your fitness is obviously extremely important to you. I saw you sent out a photo on Instagram the other day, mate, with your shirt off, which was impressive, but saying you were having a swing of the club and maybe things were creaking a little bit more than they had in the past. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, well, um, I had surgery 12 months ago on my left shoulder, and um, it's finally got to a point now where I'm 100% strong. I'm actually as strong as I've ever been, to tell you the truth, and uh, fit as I've ever been. So I've taken the time to rehab extremely well. Uh, my doctor, uh, Dr. Bradley, out of University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, who did my surgery, Say, Greg, just take your time. If you do it right, you're going to be stronger and better than what you were before the before the injury. And I did that, Howie. And uh, you know, yes, when I went out there and hit balls the other day, um, in my backyard, see, uh, my whole life I've practiced without a shirt on. Just one of those things where you know it's private, and uh, you know, my my wife came down and, and took the video and. But I've always done it. I, I just put a pair of shorts on and go down and swing, you know, feeling as comfortable as I could possibly feel. So um, in that situation, you know, I hadn't hit golf balls since the last um, September. Right. So to me, it was like, oh, my gosh, just, you know, swing like a rusty gate, but i got to start somewhere. And like today, for example, I was out hitting balls. I was doing a uh, photo shoot for today, and I only hit the golf today, and I went, wow, how good feel so just by that one practice session the other day my ball loosened up a little bit i'm stretching more every day and uh, tomorrow i'll probably go and hit a few more balls another 35 minutes to maybe an hour and i'll slowly build myself into it to play golf for fun can you play golf for fun oh yeah absolutely um i've got quite a few golf courses i'm going to be opening up in mexico and around the world over the next six months uh, so I always, you know, open the golf courses up by playing. I'm uh, playing a pro-am at a golf tournament. My production company, uh, well, I sold my production company, but uh, down in Mexico, I play there in two weeks in the pro-am. I play at pro-am and my shark shootout. So I do have golf on the horizon, uh, and it's not just fun golf. And fun golf, I, I do with my son. He called me up the other day, and he says, hey, Dad, I'm going to go hit balls. So let's go play. So those type of things that I look forward to now. More of Greg Norman in a moment. Last week's episode of the Howie Games featured Jake Edwards, a man who educated me in how tough life can be when dealing with mental health issues. The minute you're aware and you feel like things are hard, there's someone in your life right now, brother, sister, mum or dad, best mate, who generally wants to know and they want to help. And there is a way forward. It doesn't mean you need to go see... Uh, um, a doctor straight away it doesn't mean you need to go see a psychologist all it means that you need to have a conversation with someone because what it does is it just it helps you feel better just instantly you just feel like you got some shit off your chest Mm. and it's out there that was Jake Edwards in last week's episode of the Howie Games back to Greg Norman all right, let's move on to business because golf is only a part of your life, Greg. Um, and I was having a bit of a look. As you said, you've moved from GWSE Enterprises into the Greg Norman Company because you're so diversified. And the way I look at it now, Greg, I can get up and put your golf gear on 
Uh, I can put your sunglasses on. I can go to one of your courses that you've designed. I can sit in the club room that you've uh, designed. I can have a steak off uh, your beef operation. I can have a red wine from Greg Norman Estates, and I can probably have a chat with you at some stage about your investment fund. It's a it's an amazing portfolio, Greg. Um, it's just phenomenal what you've achieved in business. Well, thanks for that, Howie. Um, look, there's, I'll be honest with you, um, in the beginning, I didn't have a clue. <laughs> so how did it start? And how did it start, it, mate? When did you start to think, righto, I'm going to move away just from golf. I'm going to become a businessman, so to speak. Very, very, very clear to me. Um, when I was with the management company, um, and I didn't want to be a pastoral entity. Uh, I had a logo. It really started with Greg Norman Collection uh, when I was representing Reebok as an endorsed player with Reebok on my left chest and on my sleeve. Um, I befriended the, the owner and the um, chairman and CEO of Reebok, Paul Fireman. And he was an avid golfer. He loved golf. He, he, he knew that golf could be a bit of a door opener into his women's athletic sneaker line, right? Right. So um, as we moved into this new world, uh, he said, I want to get into golf clothing. And he said, I'm going to call it Greg Norman Collection. And he said, what I'm going to do is we're going to come up with a logo and I'm going to give you the logo and I'm going to license it back off you. That's my gift to you. And I thought, wow, okay. And now I sat back and I started thinking about it. And I said, okay, what he's doing is giving me a future. And what he did was he sent me down the path of understanding what branding and marketing is all about. Now, getting back to the, you know, didn't want it to be a pastoral entity, most, man, all management companies, they just sign you up for a period of time. And every sportsman and woman is a pastoral entity. We have a very finite time period of how good we can be in that specific sport. So there's always going to be another great Norman. There's always going to be another great athlete. There's always going to be another great swimmer. So it depends on what you have around you like i had the shark logo i had a brand that was attached to me and that was actually marketed and uh promoted by a giant parent company called reebok mm. so i got uh, tremendous support from from that and i got a, a tremendous lesson in life about sitting back and understanding the power of putting bums on the seats the power of being able to move the needle when somebody wants to turn the tv on to watch you play those are the things that are important to me. And then I started asking questions, Howie, from um, you know, management companies that owned and operated um, you know, golf tournaments. I would say, hey, you know what? Can I, I would like to get a percentage of the gate um, because they were very, very clever management companies because they would go, if I was number one player in the world, they would go to me, somebody else who might have been four or five or six, and they, they'd sign us up for a three-year deal to play in this tournament for the next three or four years. So it's pretty easy when you got, you know, guaranteed commitment out of five of the top 10 players in the world to go to television and negotiate mm. a television deal saying, I got the five best players in the world committed to you for the next three years. Here's your television rights stitched up. Now, once you got the television rights stitched up, now you can go to the sponsors and say, okay, sponsors, we need more money. Okay, we, we get the prize money. We go out and play, but we don't get all the fringe benefits. Um, you know, we don't get our... When we, when we became members of the PGA Tour, we signed our rights away. We gave it to the PGA Tour. We gave our image and likeness. We don't get any residuals like actors and singers get for, you know, when their songs get replayed or their movies get replayed. Uh, we don't get any of those residuals. So we became a pastoral entity. I recognized that very, very early on. 
And I didn't want to be that person. I wanted to build equity in my own brand. You know, I didn't know how to do it back then. But I sat back and I studied, I watched, I listened. I was very, very patient. Uh, formulated my own strategy about what to do. And when my contract expired with my management company at the time, I just re- refused to re-sign. So right there and then, I made the decision to, to start Great White Shark Enterprises in uh, basically 1993. So... A lot of blokes, Greg, and girls go to work day to day because they need the money to pay the bills. You're obviously beyond needing to pay the bills. So what gets you to want to now rebrand your company at age 62? Uh, 61. I'm near 62. Sorry, 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 61. So what what gets you on, you know, what gets you out of bed in the morning? You don't need to go to work, but you do. Um, Leaving a company that will support my family members, um, give them an opportunity to work within the company if they so choose to do it. Mm-hmm. Give the company an opportunity to support all the people who have worked for me since 19, since nearly 30 years, right? Uh, work for me for, for all this time period. I have, I have people here who are still with me after 27 years, 26 years, that type of thing. And that, that means so much to me because they're committed to me and my company. So if I can structure the company in a place where it can uh, keep moving forward and keep building on its foundation and way past my death, um, the Shark logo can live on and be supportive and, and be a brand for another 200-plus years. Um, that, to me, inspires me big time. 200 years, that's a long-term plan. I'm not sure what I'm doing tomorrow. Uh, well, I have to. Uh, that's, that's an interesting story. I, I took my executives out to my ranch uh, for a corporate retreat last year. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, you know, I laid him my 12-year horizon and I gave him my 200-year horizon. Huh. <clears throat> and they looked at me like I was an idiot, saying, <laughs> 200 years? Why 200 years? I said, well, if I can get the, like, just like I explained, if I can get the foundation underneath us the way I want it and the way I see it going forward, that everybody in this room can be here for as long as they want and their kids could actually come and work for their company if they so choose. Which is a wonderful, wonderful thing for your employees. Um, is there a responsibility, mate, that comes with money, uh, with great wealth, which you have? And again, in America, in Australia, we look at that and think, oh, in America, we look at it and think, that's absolutely fantastic. This guy's done so well. Is there a responsibility that comes with large sums of money? Well, of course there is. Absolutely there is. I mean, look, Materialistic things you can surround yourself with, but they're just materialistic things. It's the, the quality of what you deliver to the people you have around, the messaging you deliver. The, the you know, it, it, to me, money's not everything. Actually, uh, you know, it comes because you are successful and because you you got a pretty good game plan and a business plan, all, all formulated out, and it, it actually works. Um, so that's just the inevitable byproduct of it. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's the sense of satisfaction of being able to sit back and say, my gosh, I have, you know, between all my companies, maybe 500 people working for me. And uh, you go, well, wow, okay, how do we make 500 into 1,000? How, how do we build a business from here? And, and I'll give you a little snapshot, Howie. I mean, I've been working on a deal now for three years, and... Uh, Everybody thinks, oh, you know, when you sign a deal or you start up a new company, they think, oh, geez, it just happens overnight. Well, no, it doesn't. 
I'll be working on this deal, and we're about ready to sign an agreement with Verizon, one of the largest telecommunication companies in the world. Um, and it's all about business, sport, and culture. It's all about connectivity. It's all about recognizing that there are uh, opportunities out there that nobody's capitalized on. And both of us, uh, from Verizon's standpoint, you know, one of the top 13 gross revenues companies in the world actually see what we can deliver with the Greg Norman company that nobody else has ever delivered. So they, we have this incredible relationship and we've uh, got a plan to go to market and I wish I could tell you more and I'd love to tell you more about it around January next year. Mm -hmm. um, go to market with this opportunity that'll be three to five years ahead of anybody else and nobody's even thought about it and um, it just hit me like a ton of bricks one day and I went to my partner and I said, hey, David, what do you think of this? And we went, oh, my God, this is a no-brainer. So um, it's so exciting for me right now. And this is one opportunity, opens up eight other opportunities, and now I'm totally off on a different direction. And and that's basically just looking at the you know, the opportunities out there and what my company has done and, and what we can capitalize on. Mate, it's a long way from a bloke that won seven thousand dollars in a, a golf tournament and was uh, shopping at a second-hand car shop, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it certainly is. It's been a great journey. Uh, I would love to write another book, quite honestly. Um, I'm probably five years away. Um, I make a lot of notes today about what should go in this book, about the back nine of life and the experiences that I'm seeing today, and and um, you know the understanding of what happens in the political circles and the environment and the effect and the, the rub-on effect, whether it's positive and negative on your business and all that stuff. It's just a, it's a fascinating uh, place to be in. I, I never thought when I turned 60 that I'd be enjoying myself as much as I am today. Which is wonderful to hear, mate. You've been great with your time and you've got uh, big business deals to sign, so I don't want to hold you up for too much longer. I might just ask you a couple of a quick ones, sort of quick response stuff um, while we've got you here. You talked about um, the material things don't really mean much, which obviously they don't with you, but is there one thing you bought, whether it be a car or a plane or a house, is there one thing that you bought and think, yeah, that's nice? Oh, well, look, um, I guess where I'm sitting right now, my house of tranquility on Jupiter Island, it's a unique piece of property. I call it Tranquility for a reason. I built a compound. This is where I've got my gym. This is where I used to do all my heavy practice and commitment away from the limelight, and nobody knew what was going on here. Um, this would be one place um, that I would say would be near and dear to my heart. And, um, at the end of the day, it's, it's a compound that was built for me to be the number one player in the world. It's a little bit different compound today when mm. um, I don't get to use my putting green in the backyard. I get to use what well, I did the other day, as you saw in that Instagram video, mm. me hitting balls in the backyard. But I, I don't do that as much anymore. So um, it's a different uh, it's a different feel here. But this place is definitely unique. So many people want to meet you, Greg, and I, I can still recall the first time that I did some on course commentary uh, when you were playing. And Jesus, I was. I was a very, very edgy man. So it's a funny thing, fame, and wanting to meet people that you're interested in. If there's one person that you could meet in the world today that you haven't met, who would it be? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I don't know, probably the, the, the head of the CIA in the U.S. today. Yeah, he'd have some good stories to tell. Yeah, absolutely. You'd think so, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> an athlete? Who impresses you as an athlete? Um, across the board? Yeah. Um, I, was, 
I was a big Michael Schumacher fan. I was a big Alan Prost fan, uh, Ed and Santa fan. Uh, they're all Formula One race car drivers. Uh, mm. Big fan of those guys because you know they lived on the edge, um, <clears throat> maximized their, their skills to 101. percent um, I was a big fan of Michael Jordan. I liked the way he conducted himself on the court, off the court, um, over here. Alan Border really impressed me. Uh, Dennis Lilly, I loved his bowling style. Uh, so, you know, just, well, now I'm going over to soccer to see Pele. I really was impressed with Pele to see what he could do. Um, but look, there's a lot of wonderful, um, people I've met over my life and my career and, um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, each and every one of them have an impact on you to some degree. But the, the two guys that had the biggest impact on my life uh, in the sporting world would have been Muhammad Ali and Arnold Palmer. Why? Um, I got to know Arnold, uh, Arnold very early on in my career. Um, I was deciding where to live in the United States, and um, I just happened to be in Orlando or Bay Hill way back in the um, uh, early 80s. And um, I was kind of stuck about where to go. And Arnold wrapped his arm, put his big, heavy arms around my shoulder and said, you know, come and play golf with me at Bay Hill. I think you'll like it here. <laughs> and uh, I went there and I played golf with him. And I spent time with him in the locker. And, and we really became, I would say, pretty close guys. Um, you know, I probably drank more beer with Arnold Palmer than anybody else in my life. Uh, because he would embrace you when, when you're in his inner circle. He was that type of guy. Uh, we'd sit in the locker room and just talk. We'd play cards. We'd just do everything. We played a lot of exhibition matches together. I started my tournament uh, 28 years ago called the, you know, the Shark Shootout mm. uh, for Arnold Palmer to raise money for his children's hospital in Orlando. Uh, so that, that's been going for that long because of him. Uh, just things like that. And Muhammad Ali, I got to know him very early on in uh, my career in the late seventies. And, um, and I was just, you know, as much as I didn't agree with some of the stuff he was doing about, you know, skipping the Vietnam war and, and all that stuff. I just was so mesmerized by the, the, the immense amount, amount of confidence and belief he had in himself. He would just oozed that out of him all the time. There wasn't Anybody in the world that he thought uh, they could beat him. So anytime you're around him just talking, it was like that way. And he was a very, very quiet guy. You know, what all the stuff you see where he, you know, is in your face and, and, and doing all the, the PR hype was just that, I believe, because when I was with him, he was like just a gentle human being to be around. And you, just, you could absorb so much out of that. Um, so those two, from an athlete standpoint, um, and uh, two who made the biggest impact on a, I guess from a leader standpoint, would be Nelson Mandela, uh, Margaret Thatcher, uh, and probably President Bush 41. And what about, Greg, the impact you've had on people? Like, a, you know, a, a growing up, that I wanted to play golf because of Greg Norman. There is hundreds of thousands of kids around Australia and around the world and others will grow up thinking, wow, I'd love to be a businessman like Greg Norman. What a wonderful thing that you can inspire people in life. Well, I think um, when you you look back on your career as you're about ready to take your last breath, I think that's the the thing that I would think about the most about being, what is my legacy? Um, It's not what I did on the golf course. Um, That's part of it. It's what you've done in totality. 
um, and the balance you've created out of sometimes a messy situation and come on out and moved on forward. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's, uh, I think it's, it's like I mentioned about half an hour ago, it's what you can do for others is more important than what you can do for yourself. So when your young bloke, Harrison, gets up, Harrison, your grandson? Yeah, correct, Howie. When he gets up at his 50th birthday and has a speech and people say to him, what was your grandfather like, how would you like him to remember Greg Norman? Um, I probably I love life. Uh, I try and instill a lot of that in him right now at the, the ripe old age of, you know, uh, 20 months. <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, it's, 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 give a kid an M&M when they're 20 months, they'll eat M&M's the rest of their life, right? Mm. You instill the right values of life and the yes and no's and different tones you put in your voice, uh, the encouragement you give, standing there the other day playing catch with him where he can catch a tennis ball now or throwing a tennis ball at him or hold, like, getting him to hold a golf club. Mm. Those are the things, if he gets it right the first time, and understands the value of that, it stays with him for the rest of his life the right way. And, you know, just teaching him life experiences, understanding traveling the world is important, understanding the difference about what the ocean can give you compared to what the mountains can give you, all those uh, things that, you know, we take for granted, um, but we really don't get to maximize the value of what's sitting in there to, to put it into your life. Greg, I've had a fantastic 2016, but growing up idolising you to have the chance to chat with you today on the Howie Games for 45 or 50 minutes when you got so much on has been one of the highlights of 2016 for me, mate. I really appreciate your time. Still follow everything you do. You're still inspiring people. I can't thank you enough for having a chat with us. Well, thank you, Howie, and good luck with your show, Howie Games, my friend, and happy to come on any time. Good on you, Greg. Have a wonderful, safe time coming up towards Christmas with your family. Thanks for your time. Yeah, you too, bud. Thank you very much. I can't thank Greg Norman enough for his time chatting with one of your sporting idols. It's a rare treat. I hope you guys really, really enjoyed it. Thanks also to Jane McNeil, who looks after Greg's media and does a wonderful job and was very, very generous in finding time for us on the Howie Games. Hope you enjoyed the episode. We'll be back, as always, next Thursday with another brand-new episode. Until then, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try If we try, try, try Listener